you think that you're okay, huh? Well, I don't know that I'm okay any more than anybody else is okay, but I at least live a happy life and a very full one. I have a happy marriage, and my kids are all cheerful, and I'm not... Any, nobody's finding any fault with me, personally. Do you ever think that you might be quite mad? Oh, yes. The one man in the world who never believes he's mad is a madman. You are bopping along Carnaby Street in 1968 or so. Now there's nothing in particular on your mind. Uh, Perhaps you're marveling over your pinstripe trousers and how they go pretty well with your, um, your brand new Chelsea boots. And you stop to light a joint and you remember the free magazine that the guy in the dark suit with the big German Shepherd by his side handed you a block over. So you take it out of your jacket pocket and you skim through it and you notice that it's really well designed. It is in fact pretty hip and you dig it. Um, You pause on one page in particular because this is a full page splash. The graphics are bold and very stylish and the word across the top reads process scenes and beneath it are Other phrases and slogans, each of them trailed by a dazzling band of orange as if they're exploding out from the picture of an imposing looking mansion at the centre of the page. And there are odd, perplexing words at the tip of those bands of orange. Words like grey forces and humanity, coffee lounge, Satan's cavern, space beings, Trials of the Pope, the Royal Family, Hitler, hippies, sex, drugs, and black magic. In the bottom left corner, there is a box, and of a red typeface that reads, Wanted, a communist, is this passage. The process has need of a strong, dedicated communist to take on all comers in verbal free-for-all evenings with members of the public. We already have a fascist, an anarchist, and various other members of extreme groups, but a real tough communist with all the answers seems hard to come by. If you fill the bill, please apply to Christopher DePayer. The whole thing is pretty weird, but weird is far out, man, and far out is your jam. It might be fun to stop by Satan's Cavern, because with a name like Process Church of the Final Judgment, who knows what groovy scenes may await. I can see him through the wall. 
Hello and welcome to Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Hope you're good. Hope you had a good New Year's. This is the uh, inaugural episode of 2022 and I vote we call this 2020 Truth. This is the year of the truth, baby. So tonight we are doing a deep dive into the history of the process church of the final judgment. And there's a lot of bullshit and urban folk myth that's attached to this group. And our aim in this episode is going to be to try and sweep that away and look at what process actually was and how it found its niche. And what I think they will help us understand is the appeal of new religious groups and cults in the 60s and the mindset of the people who were on the fringes of the counterculture. And I think you'll see as we go along that when we look at the contemporary reaction to them and the wild speculation that sprung up around them, we also have a kind of anticipation of what would become the satanic panic in the 1980s. And in a funny way, they also offer us a window another window through which to observe the strange, sad death of the 60s dream. And in addition, this episode is going to be a look at how a conspiracy theory comes into existence, what purpose it might serve, and who that theory might benefit. And I think that once we've sort of discussed that aspect of the story, we should then have a think about what the implications might be when we consider the Manson family. So the Process Church was formed by Robert de Grimston and his wife, Mary Ann McLean, in 1966 after they'd quit the Church of Scientology. And the group initially established themselves in the Mayfair section of London, and they have become favourite boogeymen of a certain kind of researcher, um, a deliberately misunderstood group of outsiders who've been connected to absolutely everything from MI6 to the Manson murders, to the international heroin trade and the global fascist underground. Most of these claims were first made by a handful of pulp authors and conspiracy researchers and uh, LAPD cops who relied on a lot of six degrees of separation style reaching and a lot of innuendo and unfair guilt by association. Now, this isn't to say that process was entirely innocent, and I'm not saying that it didn't function much like a cult for large amounts of its existence, but it has received a lot of scrutiny and attacks that seem way out of proportion to its actual impact. And I myself, I'm not innocent here because I connected a process splinter group to the Son of Sam murders in the first ever Tales from the Graveyard Bunker episode. Now, in my defense, the Halloween shows, they are only ever semi-serious at the best of times, but I do wish that I'd been clearer that while Process did attract a few dark characters and dangerous types, there were also um, plenty of earnest people who were genuinely looking for alternative ways to live. And they still recall their time with process very, very fondly. Now, there are, there are very good reasons for why unstable or ill-intentioned people were drawn to the group. And we're going to get into that. And we will be looking at the darker aspects of their story. But I think that it's extremely unhelpful to dismiss them as some 
group of evil weirdos or put them up on a pedestal as um, the the Rosetta Stone of 60s and 70s deep intrigue, you know. And the worst thing about this ongoing project of mystification around them is that none of it helps us understand what process actually was or where it came from or why it found such a receptive audience in Britain and America and even parts of Europe. And that's a real shame, I think, because their story is fascinating and it takes us to some truly unexpected places. So to begin, we need to go back to Britain in the years immediately following World War II. And we'll find that at that time, Dianetics had become fairly popular in the UK. This is between about 1948 and 1952. Dianetics, of course, that's, you know, L. Ron Hubbard's attempt to uh, perfect the human mind, as he put it, with a new psychotherapeutic science of his own invention, and he called this mind technology. Now, according to Hubbard's original thesis, quote, Dianetics is an heuristic science built upon axioms. Workability rather than idealism has been consulted. The only claim made for these axioms is that by their use, certain definite and predictable results can be obtained. Dianetics is actually a family of sciences. It is here addressed in the form of a science of thought applicable to psychosomatic ills and individual aberrations. And he goes on to say, It is not the purpose of Dianetics to reconstruct the human mind. The purpose of Dianetics is to delete from the existing mind those physically painful experiences which have resulted in the aberration of the analytical mind to resolve the physical manifestations of mental... To resolve the physical manifestations of mental aberration and to restore in its entirety the proper working function of a brain not otherwise physically deranged. I really hope you're still with me after that. If you ever get the chance to read Dianetics, then I highly recommend it because it's very rare that you get to experience both a man in the grip of a fever just pouring his mind goo out onto a page and the creation of a new religion all in one. Um, I, I at least recommend skimming it. So basically what this boils down to is that L. Ron Hubbard had set himself a modest goal, which was to erase all madness from the human psyche by creating a brand new science that only he really understood and would in turn form the basis of a new religious movement that could bring peace and harmony to the world and could also double as an effective tax dodge. Dianetics then caught the attention of people who, don't forget, they'd just gone through a depression and then an apocalyptic world war that included the Holocaust and the use of nuclear weapons, you know, And the idea of a new science that, as Hubbard put it, could potentially deliver mankind from a state of barbarism. Well, that understandably sounded pretty good to people who'd either lived through World War II or had grown up in its immediate aftermath. So soon enough, Dianetics groups began to spring up across the States and Britain, and London and Bristol were home to two fairly popular branches as it goes. And in 1952, the Dianetic Foundation of Great Britain was formed, but 
Dianetics was decentralized and Hubbard didn't control any of these groups. Um, and he started to fear that he was losing control of his baby and that he wasn't making the money that he felt he ought to be from this new science that he'd created. So later the same year, Hubbard founded the Hubbard Association for Scientology. And he explained that he was doing this because his new phase of research had demonstrated that man was, quote, fundamentally a spiritual being and that Scientology was the result of his discoveries. And as the money began to pour in from this new enterprise, he bought St. Hill Manor in Sussex and he made it the global headquarters of the Scientology movement. Mary Ann McLean had grown up in poverty in Glasgow. Robert Moore, her future husband, was the child of the English upper class. He was born in Shanghai, actually, and he was the son of a military officer. And he served four years in the British army as a royal hussar. And both of them were archetypal seekers, you might say. They felt they felt dislocated and out of place. And, you know, like a lot of other misfits, they didn't realize it, but they were on a collision course with the 60s. Now, Mary has a very murky past. She would give conflicting accounts, in fact, of her childhood. And she eventually severed all connections to her life in Scotland. In some accounts, her mother was a mill worker who had an affair with her supervisor and was ostracized by her family for conceiving a child out of wedlock. In others, Mary's alcoholic dad abandoned the family when she was a baby and her mother struggled to raise the family alone. Mary had to learn to fend for herself and she was, she was haunted by the poverty and the rejection that she'd experienced growing up. And there are lots of wild stories about her pre-Scientology years. One of them has her moving to the States and winding up as Sugar Ray Robinson's girlfriend. Uh, Sugar Ray's son has refuted this, by the way. And we know that she moved down to London as soon as she got the chance. And supposedly she started working for a syndicate of Maltese pimps as a high class call girl. During this period, she's supposed to have serviced various men in the British establishment and in Sherbys. And there are also rumors that she was connected in some roundabout way to the Profumo affair, but these were these rumors were probably started by Mary herself, to be fair, because she was a dab hand at self-mythologization and PR, you know. And this would lead to her reaching out to some notable public figures in later years to try and grow the process brand. Robert, on the other hand, was Robert, on the other hand, he was a, a fairly typical 1950s English upper middle class car crash. Uh, he resented the life that he was living. He was stuck in an unhappy marriage. He was alienated from family. He was studying for a career in architecture that he wasn't really too keen on. And, you know, like everybody else in Britain at that time, he was drinking too much as well. Like everybody else in Britain now, to be fair. And Robert's brother, who was said to have been suffering from some type of mental illness. Uh, some people put it as bipolar disorder. Some people say it was um, kind of seasonal affective disorder. Anyway, Robert's brother underwent a Scientology audit in 1960. And then he kept going back because he said it was really helping him. And his brother did seem to show some genuine improvement as he continued to visit his local Scientology chapter. 
And Robert was intrigued by the new religion and he started to ask around about it. You know, what's this all about? Mary had become a Scientologist in 1961 and she immediately showed a flair for auditing. Now, you probably know what this is, but just in case you don't, this is when counselors, Scientology counselors, use these e-meter things on what they call pre-clears. Uh, pre-clear is a beginner Scientologist. And while you grip the two uh, metal tubes that are hooked up to the e-meter, your auditor walks you through um, an exploration of pain and trauma that not just from your present circumstances, but, you know, supposedly from your past lives as well, um, because they believe that all negative experiences from all your lives add up and accumulate over a period of time. I'm just telling you what they believe, man. Mary was, she was very good at putting people at ease and drawing deeply buried secrets out of them and uh, fellow Scientologists and people who just knew her socially at this time say that she was extremely charming and very fun to be around. Robert joined the Church of Scientology in 1962 and he and Mary were immediately attracted to each other. So both of them thought that Scientology and Dianetics were useful but that they could be improved and they developed something they called compulsions analysis, which was a sort of evolution of auditing that still used an e-meter, but, you know, built on Hubbard's Dianetics program. Now, compulsions analysis placed less emphasis on past lives, and instead, the aim was to refine Mary and Robert's gift for drawing traumatic memories and sources of anxiety out of participants in order to heal their psyches and, you know, help treat uh, comp compulsive behavior. They were also influenced by the work of an Austrian psychotherapist called Alfred Adler. Um, in time, they would start to incorporate, you know, strands of esoterica and the first faint threads of occultism into their work. But at the moment, it was more or less a straight-up attempt to create a kind of alternative psychotherapeutic process. Alfred Adler had, in turn, been influenced by the work of Nietzsche and Kant, and he developed the concept of the inferiority complex, the superiority complex, individual psychology, and stress the importance of equality as a way to treat and prevent psychopathology. And he also develops a theory called the fictional final goal. The fictional final goal is something that all human beings strive towards due to feelings of inferiority as children. And in, in his way of thinking, the more inferior and insecure a person felt as a child, the larger that person's fictional final goal becomes. So keep that in mind as we get deeper into the story of the process and see if you think it applies to anybody in particular. So L. Ron Hubbard, who I'm just going to call LRH from now on, um, he found out about Mary and Robert's new program and he realized they'd effectively built a splinter group and compulsions analysis was relatively well received amongst the Scientologists who encountered it. But LRH had them declared suppressive persons in 1965. The thing is, Mary and Robert had already quit the church in 63 uh, before LRH's decree. 
because they were very taken with compulsions analysis at this point. And I'm guessing in no small measure, they were looking at how LRH had built basically a financial empire for himself. And they thought, what the hell, let's give it a shot. And they also seemed to enjoy the freedom that compulsions analysis gave them to kind of copy and paste bits and pieces from other fields like religion, philosophy, psychiatry, and so on. Now, compulsions analysis wasn't the only group that either broke away from or, or was influenced in some way by Scientology and Dianetics. There have been a shitload. Um, John Galusha was a researcher for LRH who developed Identics in the late 1980s. Charles Manson also drew on Dianetics and Scientology when he was developing the, the underlying philosophy of the family. Harvey Jackins had been Hubbard's colleague in the early years of Dianetics, and he'd eventually break away to create re-evaluation co-counseling. And maybe the most famous or notorious group from recent history who've drawn on Dianetics and L. Ron Hubbard's personal leadership style is the NXIVM cult, Nexium. So Mary and Robert continued to develop compulsions analysis and they attracted the attention of a guy called Timothy Wiley, who was another middle-class Brit who trained as an architect alongside Robert. And like them, he was also something of a, you know, a seeker. Uh, he had an interest in psychology and spirituality. And in late 1963, he hopped aboard and he volunteered to be like essentially a guinea pig for Mary and Robert as they built up their program. And he was also one of the early dabblers in the the London acid scene. Um, at that point, it was still restricted to a very small group of people in Britain who'd actually tried LSD, but Wiley was one of them. And around 1964, they set up an auditing centre in their flat on Wigmore Street in London. And they were now calling the group Compulsions Analysis, not just the programme. And Mary and Robert, you know, by this point, madly in love with each other. They got married and took the surname de Grimstone. Now, while Robert was seen as the leader of the group, Wiley and, you know, the other former processions have since said that Mary was actually the real power at the top. And Robert increasingly became more of a figurehead as the years went by, more of a face to put in the magazine. And they began to combine meditation with auditing sessions, and they underwent a number of what they described as profound communal spiritual voyages. And Wiley had a lot of friends who also shared a similar interest in psychology and spirituality, and they were drawn to compulsions analysis based on his evangelizing. And by 65 or so, word of mouth was spreading, and more and more people we can think of as proto-hippies almost, well, more and more of them were joining the group. Um, they in turn were inviting their friends. And by the end of 65, they had about 50 to 100 members. Some people kind of rotated in and out of the group. Some people were long-termers. And they were all mostly bright and young and from the middle to the upper middle classes. And Timothy Wiley describes how they combined a kind of a studious earnest search for spiritual meaning and, and well-being with an affinity for deliberately pushing people's buttons. And this is, 
about the time when Mary and Robert rechristened the group The Process, and they moved the HQ to Balfour Place. And here it becomes more of a an experiment in communal living, you know. And this is also in Mayfair, is Balfour Place. So this puts them right in the heart of London, just as it begins to swing. And the basic principles underlying Dianetics were still there. But I think possibly to avoid legal issues with LRH, the process made a few alterations to their setup and the E-meter was given a few tweaks and renamed the P-scope and the axioms that underpin Dianetics were renamed the processes and, you know, so on and so forth. Minor tweaks of that kind. So we might as well have a look at their beliefs at this period, 65 going into 66. So Robert gave talks at the Oxford Union and the London School of Economics, in which he emphasised the central plank of the group's philosophy as being responsibility. To their way of thinking, right, no matter what your race was, or sexual orientation, or your gender, or your class position, you were solely responsible for your life and the shape that it took. And they used a very extreme example of a wheel from an aeroplane falling on somebody. And what, what Robert liked to do was give that example and then ask the crowd who thinks that the person who the wheel falls on top of is responsible for that. And obviously, most normal people are going to say, well, you know, nobody's responsible for that. I mean, it's just a horrific accident. But actually, the process argued that being underneath that wheel as it fell on top of you was a direct result of every single choice you had made up to that point. So it's an interesting reflection of the the kind of the ultra libertarian outlook of the Church of Satan, and it also evokes something of um, of Thomas Hobbes's War of All Against All. You know, and naturally, this sort of thing didn't go down well with members of Britain's liberal left or its nascent counterculture. And the point of much of this hardline talk was actually to ensure that only the the most truly committed of seekers would join the process. It was a kind of a deliberately confrontational and provocative and elitist outlook. And Robert Mary introduced the idea this is when they pivot now and start to become more overtly spiritual. This is when they introduce the idea that there are four core divinities. Then, you know, the symbol they have, uh, it's the one that sort of looks like a stylized swastika. Well, it is a stylized swastika, but it is also four interlocking P's which symbolize these four divinities. And these divinities are Satan, Lucifer, Jehovah, and Christ. The process didn't, it didn't consider them literal gods. Um, instead, they argued that these four divinities represented the different components of humanity's character. Um, the four divinities lived in everybody. And they also attached no system of morality to these four divinities. They were neither good nor evil. Instead, they were considered reflections of human reality, their words. 
And Charles Munson had a very similar belief system. Um, he preached about how every person was God and the devil at the same time. And this is one of the ways that people have tried to connect Munson to the church in the years since. And we'll get to a few more examples later. And this whole thing of the four divinities, mixing this in with um, you know, psychiatry and kind of experiments in communal living and the ultra-libertarian sort of slant of their political ideology, such as it was. Well, this is all in line with the postmodern character of a lot of these new religious groups of the 1960s. They all kind of took bits and pieces of older traditions and mixed them together to, to create something new. And the process started to draw increasingly on the work of Jung, uh, particularly his belief that one should explore the shadow what he called the shadow, as part of a kind of rite of passage. And as a sociologist called Marco Totti writes, quote, this view in line with Jung changed their psychoanalysis from a form of therapy addressed to individuals into a theology with the aim of explaining reality as a whole. And processions were instructed to choose two of the four divinities that they most strongly identified with and follow them. Uh, the church stated that Jehovah represented strength, Lucifer was light, Satan was separation, and Christ was the great unifier. And again, from Totti, quote, According to the theology of the process, the four above-mentioned divinities are therefore connected in two pairs of opposites, Jehovah and Lucifer and Satan and Christ, the dialectic of which must be reconstructed in a higher level synthesis. However, first one has to pass through the different gods, which means acting according to their character in order to achieve final reconciliation. Therefore, it is necessary to pass through Satan to find Christ, the end of the spiritual journey, as freedom from conflict and reunifier of all the paths of the gods. Just in case you're interested, Robert considered himself a mix of... Um, Luciferian and Christian traits, and Mary identified with Jehovah and Satan. And it's interesting to consider that Mary may well have been acting the part of her divinity, so to speak, as she came to exert increasing control over the process. Word of mouth starts to spread, and the occasional um, article starts appearing in like uh, the underground press and even in like some uh, weekly tabloids. Uh, it's around this time that Robert also gets the nickname the Christ of Carnaby Street. So if you were a new member of the group, you've just rocked up at Balfour Place, you were expected to hand over all your worldly possessions and all your money as well. And part of your duties would involve panhandling for the church, you know, going out on the streets basically and begging donations. And another Manson family echo is found there because that's also what he'd have the family do too. If new members had a dog, they were welcome to bring the dog along to the church and animals were kind of venerated by the process. And Marianne in particular had a lot of fondness for German shepherds and German shepherds are a whole thing with the process that we will get into in due course. And then as you moved up the ranks, you received a baptism with each promotion and uh, Sabbaths were held every Sunday, meditation sessions were compulsory and uh, communal 
singing sessions and you know communal uh, activities were he- heavily encouraged. So although they have this rep as a kind of a deranged sex cult that performed black masses and sacrificed animals, it's quite hard to substantiate a lot of this. Um, I've seen a quotation from a Sunday Mirror article about process and it's made the rounds online and it's usually used as proof of the more outrageous claims about the group. This particular quotation says, strange sex ideas are part of the process beliefs and things advocated by some followers would be unlikely to find their way into other cults, including black magic. And I've seen people using this passage as proof that process was somehow an incarnation of pure evil. And in fact, it was, it was too extreme even for other cults, you know, the things that it got up to. But what I notice is that they always make sure to elide the fact that process didn't actually practice black magic as such. Um, at least not at this point, it didn't. And other claims of, of, black magic that it practiced well we'll again we'll explore that in a bit and we also have to remember that what might strike a tabloid journalist as you know strange sex in 1965 needs to be taken in context and in fact when you read on in that same paragraph it's quite obvious that what the writer considers strange is that process had declared in their magazine uh, quote The true homosexual relationship can be one of dignity and pride. Such relationships can in fact be free of the guilt and disillusionment that can result from sexual relations between a man and a woman. So we start to see here the outline. The outline of the approaching reactionary-led panic about sex and occultism and Satanism that would flare up again and again in the decades to come. And it's a reactionary-led panic that still poisons a lot of, frankly, a lot of leftist parapolitical research today as well. And processions also dressed in all black, and they became very familiar kind of head-turning figures on the hip London scene. Uh, They'd, you know, frequently be seen out walking their dogs, smoking cigarettes, wearing dark sunglasses day or night, handing out pamphlets and stickers and badges that said stuff like humanity is the devil, the end is nigh, or, you know, whatever else might be likely to attract some attention. And you'll see people referring to these dogs of theirs as monstrous or um, hellhounds is a very common description. But the photographs that I've dug up, to be honest, they show very weedy looking hipster types walk in, to be honest, adorable Labradors and German Shepherds and Collies. And I can imagine most of of the processions themselves, I can imagine that they'd be the type of guys who today would be out practicing tightrope walking in my local park, you know, when the weather turns nice. Now, some darker stuff is coming, don't worry. But I'm I'm just trying to ground us before we get into all that because I have heard almost every single claim about process and I have searched and searched for proof of some grand scheme behind the church, you know, some vast underworld of fascist spooks or sex traffickers or contract killers who were using them as a front. And 
all that keeps happening is I run into lots and lots of crazy sizzle and little to no factual stake, so to speak. Now, this is distinct from the claim that splinter groups are dangerous sickos who, who might have passed through the church, you know, went on to do heinous shit. Um, I think that claim actually has a lot of merit, um, but it still doesn't really prove that the process had anything to do with it, really. So to loop back, anyway, to the process and sex, there have been accounts of the occasional orgy, and that seems, to be honest, that seems par for the course with most of these countercultural groups at this period. And sex, you know, increasingly it became a tool of coercion in the church in later years. And that is grim, don't get me wrong. But the honest reporters who found their way into the church during the 60s, uh, they were surprised to find a group of very serious and relatively grounded young people who were all seeking some form of enlightenment. I even saw one article describe a few processions as shockingly earnest and even a little bit dull. Now, drugs and alcohol were discouraged as well in this early period, and none of them either believed in or practiced black magic. I, I emphasize that again, and I know you, if you've kind of dabbled in process research, you will say that's bullshit and uh you know i'm i'm possibly working for mi6 or whatever the fuck by saying that but trust me at, at least during this period of time they did not practice black magic all of that stuff was kind of retroactively imposed on them after the facts particularly after like the manson murders and timothy wiley and more than a few other processions were also known to frequently like smoke weed and drop acid despite you know the the rules not exactly forbidding but yeah discouraging drug use now the potential for a more sinister kind of cult behavior was there and we could make the argument that eventually they did get around to this more sinister behavior in fact it's likely they did and we will get to that but again i'm just trying to kind of contextualize the church and make it clear that much of what we think we know about them is massively, massively overblown. But there was a heavy streak of uh, apocalypticism that ran through their teachings. Uh, Mary and Robert both spoke frequently of a coming end time. And they drew on uh, Zoroastrianism and Christianity uh, when they were synthesizing this belief. And they described how the four divinities would eventually be unified and mankind would pass into a, a golden age, you know, the so-called world to come. Now, contrary to their, their dark, glowering reputation, the church emphasized that the four divinities could only unify if humanity learned to love each other and live in peace. Uh, Mary and Robert were both known to frequently quote Matthew 5, 4, 4 in their sermons, which goes like this. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which spitefully use you and persecute you. So if you you haven't turned off in disgust yet because you think that I'm being, you know, I'm painting too rosy a picture of the group. Let's get into some of the more problematic aspects of 
process. By 1966, Mary had already begun to turn off more than a few processions with her barely veiled admiration for the Nazis. Um, she's alleged to have told a few confidants that she was the reincarnation of Joseph Goebbels. Timothy Wiley um, says this, quote, as we in the inner circle came to know Marianne better, I'm sure that each of us in our own way had to struggle to make sense of or to excuse many of her more extreme opinions. She clearly admired much of what well-educated young liberals disliked and dismissed. Although not classically anti-Semitic, she could sound that way when applying the exceptionally harsh teachings of the process on responsibility and holding the Jews as liable for their complicity in their own destruction as the Nazis were for their genocidal impulses. It was also clear that she held a much higher regard for animals than humans and that she had a soft spot for dictators and right-wing ideologues. Blaming the Jews for the Holocaust sounds pretty fucking anti-Semitic to me, but you know... How sincere Mary actually was about this sympathy for, you know, dictators and right-wing ideologues, we, we won't know. We do know that the, the leadership of the process and the process as a whole really got off on, on winding people up, as we say, on trolling, on, you know, basically being confrontational, provocative dickheads. But you know, claiming that you're the reincarnation of Joseph Goebbels is going a little bit too far, as is, you know, blaming the Jews for the Holocaust and something else she did, which we'll get into uh, in a little while. And additionally, Mary had a very, very strong messianic streak that grew and grew as she assumed more power. And eventually she wound up encouraging her in a circle to believe that she was the incarnation of Gaia. And at other times, she also claimed to be Hecate. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I've never said that word out loud before. Hecate, I think, was... Uh, a, I've, I've got a description here that says the goddess of the dark of the moon, um, associated with dark deeds. And she'd also claim occasionally to be a Hindu deity called um, Kali, who was a goddess whose uh, right side is associated with maternal love and comfort and whose left side is associated with uh, fury and vengeance. So, you know, she she also had no problem merrily travestying like thousands and thousands of years of religious um, thought, religious philosophy. And she would also increasingly treat lower ranking processions with a mixture of contempt and affection as a way to condition them and control them. And as time passed, Robert and Mary only spoke to the inner circle of the process and they refused to address any of the lower ranking members directly. And processions were also expected to refer to the couple as the Omega. And then Mary effectively made herself invisible to the group and she began issuing orders and directions only through her her closest confidants. Now, I hope you're also noticing that we haven't talked about Robert much um, for a while. And that's because by all accounts, he was a kind of archetypal English middle-class gent. He was very demure in many ways, despite forming a cult. And he was more or less happy to serve a 
mostly symbolic role. You know, appear for the odd uh, press interview, have his picture taken for the magazines, but he was happy to leave the big decisions and the logistical issues to Mary and her assistants. He was usually busy writing down um, new theological uh, in lines of inquiry and putting together his numerous books that he wrote. And by 66, the church was beginning to sense that they, they weren't welcome in Britain. They'd worn out their welcome in Albion. So they decided to move their operation. So 25 processions moved to the Bahamas to scout new headquarters and 30 processions and six dogs then moved to the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico and they set up a commune in an abandoned salt factory. And in November, Hurricane Inez struck the Yucatan and the processions miraculously survived it. And Mary took this as a sign from the four divinities that process was on the right path and that it was meant to do great things in a, a hellish world um, that was on the edge of apocalypse. And the processions agreed with her about this. So it's here where they began to take on a more overtly religious and mystical vibe. And former group members described that this this near-death experience that they all shared in Yucatan kind of became a unifying moment for them. It, it was a moment that brought them all much closer together. So they moved back to London and they started producing those um, exquisitely designed magazines that we're all probably familiar with now. And Timothy Wiley became the church's art director. And he started to combine kind of modernism and psychedelia into um, his work on the magazine. The first issue was called The Common Market, and they, they even distributed it to members of the House of Commons for free. They then went on to open the famous coffee shop, um, Satan's Cavern, in the basement of the Balfour House mansion. And that's where they started to recruit more new members. And um, I'm also told they served a, a delightful cup of coffee as well. And at this point, London is fully swinging. And the process at Mary's instigation, they starts to reach out to major celebrities of the time. So people like Mick Jagger, Marianne Faithfull, uh, Mary's Highland Mall uh, visited London and, and became friendly with the process. And George Clinton as well. Um, they all found themselves hanging out with processions. And there are even rumors that Paul McCartney and Brian Epstein, uh, before Brian Epstein's death, as uh, rumors that they dropped by Satan's cavern to check out the scene. This is where they really started to test and provoke the crowds at the coffee shop with these elaborate performance art happenings and the more overtly occult stuff started to become a major element around this time. This is where a lot of the claims of them practicing black magic um, originate from. Now I clipped this from Compulsion Online, quote, process events stretched to rituals, Sabbath assemblies, and even a black mass, which elicited fear and anger from the shocked audience. It was a very cruel piece of religious satire, recalls Wiley, imaginatively describing it as being Dada meets Alistair Crowley. The highly stylized literature they published included the Process magazine, which focused on single theme issues such as sex, fear, death, and love, which they hawked to the humdrum masses of grey forces. Uh, this is me just interrupting. Grey forces was their term for 
normies. And he goes on to say, uh, the, the magazine was hawked on the streets by members dressed in black and purple hooded cloaks emblazoned with a goat of Mendes patch or pendants of their swastika-like four-way P emblem draped around their necks. The process weren't looking to appeal. As Timothy Wiley deadpans, we were always trying to turn people off and the people who got through, they were the elect. I'm very interested by this because Wiley is not the only person who said that um, a big sort of part of the process was trying to shock and alienate people in a way, or at least see how much someone could take before they became alienated, which seems rather counterintuitive for a, a, a sophisticated intelligence operation. Um, and it also sort of speaks to how much artifice there was around the group they were very aware of of creating a public image that would make an impression and the supposed you know black magic that they practiced as Wiley says Dada meets Alistair Crowley so yeah we'll turn to something else that fascinates a lot of researchers which is the sheer amount of moving around that the process did during this time in 67, Mary and Robert traveled around the Middle East and they fetched up in Israel and Turkey. And Robert wrote a number of books kind of expanding on the process church's core beliefs. Other processions landed in Munich, in Amsterdam, and as they were kind of riding high on messianic fervor, they then decided to launch a recruitment drive in the States. Uh, by 68, Mary and Robert, together with their in a circle. They were out scouting potential locations for a new headquarters in either Paris, Rome, or Madrid. And this this pattern of movement has led a lot of researchers to suspect that they were actually intelligence operatives um, moving from hotspot to hotspot to conduct surveillance and set up networks of some type. But you see, the thing is, the exact purpose of these intelligence operations is never really elaborated on. Um, particularly a surveillance or intelligence gathering operation that draws so much attention to itself and seeks to deliberately push people away. <laughs> when you probe these claims, all the roads seem to lead back to claims made by Ed Sanders or Maury Terry. And for various reasons, in my opinion, all of their claims have to be taken with a huge fistful of salt. They had their own agendas when they were writing their books. And I think that in Maury Terry's case especially, he started with a conclusion and then he wrote his way into believing that he was onto something. And I don't think he was for the most part. That's not to say that there aren't some odd aspects to the process. There are three intriguing notions in particular that we'd probably find it worthwhile to consider these. So first, Robert Moore, he was the son of a military officer, you know, and he was a product of the English upper classes as well. Um, second, Mary had previously claimed some vague connections to the British establishment during her time as an escort. Um, third, Timothy Wiley, um, he does actually have a tendency to skip certain details and, you know, leave particular threads dangling in his book about his time in the process. And at one point he mentions that 
His mother worked for MI6 during the war, and then he just moves on from it. He doesn't elaborate, and he doesn't offer any more information. And it's a very incongruous comment. So I decided I decided to see what I could find out about this, and it turns out Diana Wiley was actually a codebreaker at Bletchley Park, and she was granted a top-secret clearance level uh, code ultra and she did, in fact, work directly under Stuart Graham Menzies, who was the MI6 spy chief. But the problem is, this is about as far as you can really go with it. Uh, we don't have any proof that Wiley himself was a spook. And process members kind of lived to fuck with the unwary and say and do provocative things for kicks. Um, and in fact, you know, as we can see, this, this has come back to haunt them in the years since. So as far as all the traveling around goes, I mean, this is kind of a mundane and prosaic explanation, but it's the best one I've got, which is they were receiving donations from some of their celebrity patrons by this point. They were panhandling and, you know, the magazine sales also probably filled the piggy bank a little bit more. And on top of that, a lot of processions were rich kids with access to, you know, trust funds. So I'm sure that they all had more than enough money to kick in to, you know, the travel bank. We'll get to the process in America then. So basically, when they crossed the Atlantic, they found a pretty crowded market in the United States because the place was heaving with new religious movements and communes. Um, in California, they were competing with outfits like the Sauce family the Hare Krishnas, Scientologists, Saucer Cults, People's Temple, the Church of Satan, and God knows how many uh, independent acid-fried gurus in New Orleans, where, where they were officially incorporated as the Process Church of the Final Judgment. Uh, they found themselves locked in a rivalry with a sect of um, LSD Buddhists called the Body Sala. There's an art critic called Eric Buchhart, and he says of this time, the body sala's rituals were always great parties in the French Quarter, ostensibly religious rituals with drumming and dancing into the night. It was great. The process, in contrast, were clearly a much more sinister invasion. They were uptight, acid-freak, would-be messiahs. They weren't very successful in recruiting. They didn't have any of the grassroots appeal that body sala had. Uh, incidentally, actually, there is a curious Masonic connection here, which I think we actually mentioned this in American Tabloid 6. Uh, basically, the lawyer who incorporated the Process Church in New Orleans was a member of the same Masonic Lodge as the New Orleans Mafia boss, um, Carlos Marcello. Buchhardt's description of them as uptight and, you know, their general distaste for people it makes it difficult to imagine them being very effective as some kind of intelligence operation. Now, I guess we should explore the, the spaghetti mess of process in California and its supposed links to the Manson family.
I think to begin with, we should discuss a couple of groups that have been connected to one degree or another, um, to the son of Sam Killens. And these are 4Pi or the 4P movement. Um, this is a group that we're told broke away from process and then fractured again into a group called the children in New York. Or in alternative tellings of this story, they set up the children, 4Pi did, as an outpost in New York City that was working with David Berkowitz, um, the son of Sam Killer. Now, I do think it's likely that Berkowitz wasn't acting alone. And a lot of the cops and city officials at the time uh, in New York seemed to secretly suspect that he'd had help as well. But they couldn't voice these concerns because of the sheer amount of pressure that the department had been under to close the case and, and catch the son of Sam. What I would recommend at this point is that you go and listen to the very first Halloween special that we did, Tales from the Graveyard Bunker 1, uh, for a bit more information around all this. But remember, again, that those shows are always, at most, semi-serious. And the only thing that really connects the Son of Sam cult, the alleged Son of Sam cult in Yonkers, to the process is, well, believe it or not, it's German Shepherds. You see, David Berkowitz had said that this cult that he was a member of had made a habit of sacrificing, ritualistically sacrificing German shepherd dogs in a park in Yonkers. And when the cops went and started digging in this park, they did actually find the bones of a number of German shepherds that had been, uh, it seemed like they had been ritualistically killed. Uh, of course, the, this conflicts somewhat with the fact that the process practically worshipped their dogs. You'll also see a lot of um, researchers describe a guy called Bill Mentzer, who was the Cotton Club killer and a hitman on the West Coast. You'll see them say that he was or had been a four-pie leader at one time and that he'd offered assistance to Berkowitz in New York. And he's also been connected to the Zodiac killings as well, unsurprisingly. And I do think it's possible that he was involved in some way with the Sam killings, given Berkowitz IDing him, picking him out of a mugshot lineup. But the process stuff feels much less solid. And I would in fact go so far as to say that it's vaporous to the point that it's non-existent. It's based on, on a lot of rumor and a lot of innuendo and a lot of that six degrees of separation style reaching that we talked about at the top of the show. And even if you grant that he was a four pi member or even a four pi leader, you still need to connect him directly to the process to prove that he was working on their behalf to set up what's being described as a nationwide satanic terror network, a kind of domestic phoenix program uh, run by Satanists. And personally, I just do not see it. So we'll get to the Manson family. And here, we really start to see how conspiracy theories don't just develop, but they become weaponized at the same time. And one of the earliest claims that Manson was a member of the process or that he'd taken instruction from them in some way, well, that appeared in Vincent Bugliosi's Helter Skelter. And he says that the family and the process first met in San Francisco 
And this is a quote from Helter Skelter. From about April through July 1967, Charles Manson and his still-fledgling family lived just two blocks away at 636 Cole Street. The Process Church had their headquarters at 407 Cole. In view of Manson's curiosity, it appears very likely that he at least investigated the Satanists and there is fairly persuasive evidence that he borrowed some of their teachings. So I'm just going to break in here and say that Manson borrowed bits and pieces of his philosophy from all over the place, uh, everywhere, from Dianetics to Hare Krishna flyers to the last guy that he'd tripped with. There is zero evidence, zero evidence outside of speculation directly linking the process to the Manson family. Now, second, go and look at Cole Street on Google Maps um, and you'll find that, yeah, the Manson house and the process house are about five or six minute walk away from each other. But then look at the, the size of Cole Street. It's huge. And, you know, back in the late 60s, that will have been full of cult leaders, hippie gurus, acid freaks, experiments in communal living and what have you. You could just as easily tie any one of those to the Manson family. And from there, you could extrapolate some kind of grand conspiracy. Um, there's also the supposed eyewitness sighting of the Manson bus parked outside their house at one time. But I say again, so what, you know? It doesn't mean anything. So Bugliosi goes on to say, quote, In one of our conversations during the Tate-LaBianca trial, I asked Manson if he knew Robert Moore or Robert de Grimston. He denied knowing de Grimston, but he said he'd met Moore. You're looking at him, Manson told me. Moore and I are one and the same. I took this to mean that he felt they thought alike. Now again, this is me speaking. Not to sound too precious about this or anything, but... <laughs> I've kind of lived inside Charles Manson's head for some time now while I've been putting this series together. And to me, this sounds exactly like the kind of psycho babble that he'd spew whenever he was with an interviewer that he was trying to freak out or impress. He used to say he was Christ. He used to say he was the devil. He used to say he was Lee Harvey Oswald and so on and so forth. In fact, I would say that probably the most accurate portrayal of Charles Manson is the time that Bob Erdenkirk played him on the Ben Stiller show. And in the, the sketch that they do, Charles Manson has been adopted by a family and it's filmed in the style of like Lassie. It's as if it was a, a TV show from the 1950s. And the way that Manson acts in that sketch is very much what Charles Manson was like. That is a more accurate depiction of him than Vincent Bugliosi's supposedly non-fiction depiction of Charles Manson in Helter Skelter. You want to talk to Mrs. Wilson? Why don't you want to talk to Charlie? You think if you don't talk to me, I'll go away. But I can't go away because I'm not even here. I'm a ghost of a phantom of a shadow in the heart of your children. Manson! <laughs> oh, hi, Bernice. Manson thinks he's helping by answering the phone. Scoot. I tell you, I wish I had 25 hours in a day so I could get something done around here. Hey, Mom, I gotta go catch some toads. Well, take Manson with you. He's underfoot today. When's dinner? I'm starved. Hold your horses, mister. You got to walk it like you're talking. Wop, bop, bloop, bop, bop, bam, boom. Hush, Manson, I'm fixing dinner. I'll fix brain stew for dinner when I'm the cook, Jack. Shh. 
What has gotten into you, boy? And where's Timmy? Timmy? I don't know. I got the eye of the tiger, and I don't know who to kill first. Are you trying to tell us something, boy? You can lock me up, but you can't block me up. I'm so insane, I'm sane. Good Lord, he's trying to tell us Timmy's in trouble. What happened, boy? Did Timmy have an accident by the lake? Accident? There are no accidents. Don't give me that jive, Jack. There is only the plan, and everything else is jack Timmy got bit by a snake. And, and the poison's gonna start working soon. Oh, we don't have time. We've got to get there. Show us the way. Show us the way, boy. And then Bugley OC wraps up with this. Not long after this, I was visited by two representatives of the process, a father John and a brother Matthew. Having heard that I was asking questions about the group, they had been sent from their Cambridge, Massachusetts headquarters to assure me that Manson and Moore had never met and that Moore was opposed to violence. They also left me a stack of process literature. The following day, the names Father John and Brother Matthew appeared on Manson's visitors list. What they discussed is unknown. All I know is that in my last conversation with Manson, Charlie became evasive when I questioned him about the process. The process is kind of in a no-win situation here. If they'd never spoken to Bugliosi, if they'd never made the effort to reach out and assuage his fears, then I'm confident that he would have used that as proof that they were hiding something. Them trying to contact him and leaving him literature seems more like a botched attempt to show him that they had nothing to hide. And it also accords with what we know about them being provocateurs and trolls, you know? I can imagine that they had initially a somewhat ambiguous, uncertain reaction to the Tate-LaBianca murders like a lot of other countercultural counter groups did. They weren't sure how to take the Manson murders initially and groups like the Weather Underground would end up declaring 1969 as being the year of the fork and they would rally in support of the Manson family and praise uh, the, the massacres as uh, pretty far out and groovy revolutionary activity. I can imagine that the process here kind of had a similar confused um, thinking about how to respond to the case. And they could have thought that initially some sort of connection to Manson and what happened at Cielo Drive could be good for their brand in a roundabout way. Nobody was thinking very clearly in the counterculture by this point. Bugliosi and other writers have also tried to put Process Church and the Manson family together by alleging that they both hung out at a place called Devil's House in San Francisco. And it's here, we're told, that they supposedly cooked up the idea of recruiting biker gangs to act as muscle and protection during the apocalyptic race war that Charlie would go on to call Helter Skelter. It's usually speculated, and it's usually claimed actually, that it was the process who gave Manson not just the idea to hire biker gangs as protection, but also gave him the idea for Helter Skelter as well. And again, I say to that, where is the proof? You know, supposedly the group that Manson was hanging out with was called the Church of Final Judgment, but that was a claim that was, again, retroactively made. Manson is supposed to have claimed that the group he was hanging out with was called that at one time or another, but it's difficult to know at this later day if he was just on a wind-up I suspect that's what was going on there. 
Another claim is that once the process got to LA, Charlie and some members of the Manson family would, they'd occasionally visit a house called the Spiral Staircase in Topanga Canyon. And this is one of the more interesting notions to consider because Manson said that as he moved, you know, through Dennis Wilson and Terry Melcher, and as he moved deeper into this showbiz circle um, in LA, when he'd go to places like the Spiral Staircase, he says that he saw lots of famous celebrities and politicians and public figures hobnobbing and engaging in group sex and weird satanic rituals from time to time. Now, if we grant that he was actually seeing what he claims he saw, I would put this on the same level of significance as the the Davos set being really into, you know, spirit cooking and stuff like that. We have to remember that we're dealing with really wealthy theatre kids when we're talking about these sorts of celebrity circles. And they have, at the time and today, they have easy access to huge amounts of drugs and a lot of free time on their hands. Satanism was fairly popular with countercultural Hollywood in as much as it was seen as a, you know, a new and groovy form of spirituality. So you had Anton LaVey, the the head of the Church of Satan. He was friendly with Roman Polanski, and he'd even had a cameo as the devil in Rosemary's Baby. Um, Dennis Hopper, I believe, later said that Sharon Tate and her circle were supposed to be quite interested in Satanism, um, along with, you know, white magic and New Age spiritual practices. The house at Cielo Drive had also become a major party spot for figures at the top of New Hollywood by the summer of 1969. And there are lots of believable stories of week-long drug-fueled sex parties where actors and rock stars mingled with the kind of creepier, seedier, weirder parts of the counterculture. John Didion, in fact, has written at length about how the wheels were really starting to come off the car as 1969 rolled on. Uh, people were burning out, they were dying, disappearing, going crazy, and a much darker and nastier and more paranoid atmosphere was settling on Hollywood. Sharon Tate herself was said to have been terrified of some of the people who kept visiting the Cielo Drive house and crashing out there. And just prior to the murders, she begged Polanski not to stay in London too much longer because she didn't like being left alone uh, with the people that he befriended in Hollywood. There are two relatively well-substantiated stories about how dark the scene in LA had become by this point, that this should help really drive the point home. Now, one has it that after the murders at Cielo Drive, the LAPD found a number of videotapes in the loft. And when they watched them, they turned out to be films of Sharon Tay, allegedly, being coerced into having sex with different men at parties at the house while Roman Polanski directed the scenes from behind the camera. Uh, the cops returned the tapes to Polanski and it's theorised that everybody agreed it would be better if the tapes disappeared. The other story concerns a drug dealer called Billy Doyle. Now, this is from Tom O'Neill's Chaos. Quote, As the story goes, at some point in the months before the murders, the residents of Cielo threw one of their endless parties, with Wojciech Frakowski and Jay Sebring leading the charge. 
Billy Doyle showed up and, in the spirit of the times, drank, smoked and snorted himself to unconsciousness. Frykowski and Sebring wanted to get even with Doyle for something. Some say he'd sold them bad drugs. So, before a crowd of onlookers, they lowered Doyle's pants, flogged him and anally raped him. Candice Bergen, in an interview with the LAPD a few weeks after the murders, said it was a rape, most likely at Sebring's place or at his friend John Phillips uh, of the Mamas and the Papas. Dennis Hopper told the Los Angeles Free Press that it was at the Cielo house. He described it as a mass whipping of a dealer from Sunset Strip who'd given them bad dope. Ed Sanders, in The Family, reports that Doyle was whipped and video buggered, and the location varies depending on which edition of the book you're looking at. I made sure to leave that bit about Ed Sanders in at the end there because there are a number of other witnesses, as we've seen, who um, claim to have seen this happen. So if Charlie's telling the truth about what he saw at the spiral staircase and other celebrity party houses in LA, and all the other witnesses are telling the truth about this stuff as well, then that goes a long way towards explaining why so few Hollywood insiders from the time have felt comfortable speaking about either Tate LaBianca or that whole period more generally, because many of them were complicit in a lot of what was going on. So in lieu of facts, of first-hand accounts of what happened, of the time leading up to the massacre, we get a lot of speculation and therefore we get people trying to plug the gaps. And in fact, as we'll see, it probably serves certain people better if the process can be connected to CLO Drive somehow as this, this dark outside alien force entering the scene and causing mayhem. Because don't forget that Vincent Bugliosi was concerned primarily with his own celebrity and his bank account. So if he could connect the family to this weird cult of Satanists from Britain, that would add some additional salaciousness, a little bit of extra pepper to his narrative that might shift a few extra copies, who knows. Most of all, what we have to remember is that there is an entire web of intrigue spreading out from Cielo Drive that didn't include the process, but did include Hollywood VIPs, the LAPD, the Los Angeles County Sheriffs, the Los Angeles DA, the FBI, Chaos, Pro, drug trafficking by cops and Hollywood players, the shady machinations of Governor Reagan and the CIA. Tom O'Neill neatly dismantles much of, you know, Bugliosi's bullshit in chaos. He manages to uncover possible evidence that Bugliosi was in fact involved in manipulating evidence and suborning perjury to ensure a conviction against Manson and other members of the family. And several sources in the book describe Bugliosi as deeply compromised in some way. So him trying to divert attention from all of this is an obvious move, you know, it makes sense from his perspective. And pointing out the process helps Bugliosi add a layer of additional mystification that obscures the truth of whatever was really going on at the time. So where did this Manson process connection actually come from? Well, I do actually have a theory that's substantiated by evidence and by the historical record, and it does involve a conspiracy, but the process weren't participants in it. They were victims of it. 
let's consider that when the cops finally got around to raiding Spahn Ranch after Tate LaBianca, they found copies of Dianetics and Scientology pamphlets and literature all over the place. And this was actually briefly reported at the time. And the cops considered possible links between Scientology and the family. Elron Hubbard was already convinced that there was a vast conspiracy by suppressive persons in the CIA, the FBI, the Pentagon, MI6, and the Secret Service, the US Secret Service, to destroy Scientology and take away his money and his ships and stop him healing humanity and saving the world. Now, Scientology employs attack dog lawyers and publicists exclusively. And when they discovered they were an influence on Manson's philosophical outlook, and that, you know, by extension, they might be blamed for the Tate-Labianca murders just as they are trying to make serious inroads into Hollywood. They went on the offensive. Now, since LRH had harbored a grudge against the process for years, they were a pretty obvious and a pretty easy way to divert attention away from Scientology. They were an easy target. And his people started spreading rumors that not only was Manson influenced by process, but he was also a fully-fledged member, possibly a high priest, and that he'd gotten the idea for the murders by participating in process church's satanic ritual sacrifices. This angle would have been much more appealing to people like Bugliosi, since Scientology was starting to flex its political and financial clout in LA. And who knows, he might need a favor from them at some point. And in fact, Bugliosi went to great lengths to downplay the Scientology connection and amplify the extremely shaky process link in the face of all evidence to the contrary. Now, additionally, the LAPD had shown a pattern of letting Manson walk even though he repeatedly violated his parole. And we explored this at length in episode 35. We have already established that there's good reason to believe Charlie was either an informant for the LAPD intelligence unit or possibly even the FBI. And at the very least, the LAPD and the county sheriff had been staggeringly negligent in not revoking his parole. This is to say nothing of the potential links to chaos and COINTELPRO that Tom O'Neill has uncovered. The LAPD, the LA County Sheriff's, were directly responsible for Manson still being on the street in August of 1969 and therefore free to order the Tate LaBianca murders in the first place. So of course they were going to seize on even the smallest connection between the family and the process as a distraction from what had really been going on. You know, even if it only turned out to be a temporary distraction, it was still worth it. So it suited the LAPD, the county sheriffs as well, Bugliosi and Scientology to push public and media attention in the direction of the process. The cops additionally knew that the details of the Cielo Drive crime scene had driven the press into an absolute frenzy and they would lap up any suggestion that the massacre was actually part of some kind of cult ritual and therefore potentially connected to some kind of nationwide underground satanic terror network. I should also point out that 
the Manson murders happened 18 months after the LA chapter of Process had closed and the last members had left the city. So let's take it back to Scientology. There is a curious incident in the story of the Manson family in 1968. And this is when Charles Manson dispatches one of his lieutenants, Bruce Davis, to London in November of 68. Um, When he landed there, he went to work at Scientology headquarters and the church has since claimed that they kicked him out for drug abuse in April of 1969, whereupon he flew back to California. After the fact, LAPD officers would not only insist that Bruce had been visiting process members too, but that he'd actually spent more time with them while in London than he had at the Scientology building. They never substantiated this. And frankly, you know, if you were taking the LAPD's word for anything, you you shouldn't be listening to the show, mate. I don't know what else to say to you. The LA branch of Scientology, in fact, did investigate the links between themselves and Davis. And they were gripped by terror when they realized just how close he was to the church, how close he had been. In fact, when Scientology's headquarters were raided in 1977, a tranche of documents was discovered that shows feverish, anxious messages and internal memos flying back and forth between different upper-ranking Scientologists about this connection between the Manson family and Scientology. And it's since come to light that when Manson was in prison in the early 60s, he received 150 hours of Scientology auditing. Some of his fellow inmates from the time say that he was alternately really into Scientology and terrified of his auditor at the same time. So... Yeah, the suggestion of a process connection makes a lot of sense from the perspective of LAPD, Scientology, and the LADA. And in typical kind of counterintuitive, provocative dickhead fashion, the process decides to approach Manson in jail and ask him to submit an article for the death issue of their magazine. And we mentioned earlier that Bugliosi had written about how Manson became evasive when he was asked why these these processions had visited him in prison. Well, this is why. This is what I think anyway. And I think that this stands up. This is why he was evasive. Because he was worried that if he let it slip, that he'd been tapped to write, you know, a magazine article, that avenue to communicate his message to the public might be shut down, you know, because he did love a soapbox, did Charlie. And the process, to be fair, you know, the process did themselves absolutely no favors here. And this association with Manson was something that was going to tarnish them forever, you know. And they did actually sue Ed Sanders because of what he wrote about their link to Manson in the family. And they won the case in the US. And all future editions of his book have that section about the process removed. In the UK, they lost their case and you'll see a lot of researchers, conspiracy researchers, hold this up as proof that there was something to Ed Sanders' claims. But actually, this doesn't prove anything. And I'll tell you why. Because the judge in that case, in the British courts, 
was this old Etonian Tari with a clear and acidic disdain for Satanism and new religious movements, and not to mention the counterculture more broadly. So there was no way they were ever going to win. And in fact, as Tim Wiley says, Marianne and Robert's decision to stay clear of the courtroom in Britain, they sent three process masters to represent them instead. That decision led to a level of sarcasm from the judge and defense attorney seldom seen in an English court. The sometimes incoherent responses from poor Father John and the others, and the court's mocking disbelief that Robert would choose not to defend and justify his own writings, swung the court firmly against us. So at the beginning of the 1970s, the process made a number of attempts to expand, and they began moving from one place to another again, trying to find new headquarters and set up new chapters. So as an example of how all over the place they were at this point, the Rome chapter closed and then Mary and Robert moved to Key Largo in Florida. Then a chapter in Toronto became the, new, the site of the new headquarters. They opened up chapters in New York and Boston, but they closed the New Orleans chapter. Then they reopened it, but they closed Balfour Place for good in London. And it's around this time, 1970, 1971, that Marianne began to run the group as a straight-up totalitarian cult. Uh, she micromanaged the lives of her subordinates and she insisted that they recognise her as the goddess, as Gaia. And more and more pressure was being piled on processions to raise money through panhandling, selling magazine subscriptions, obtaining endorsements from celebrities and other countercultural figures. And Marianne came to believe that telepathy was actually possible. And the group were ordered to spend hours staring at each other, you know, trying to send messages and, and read thoughts, which, you know, from an outside observer's perspective, that would look a lot like cult brainwashing, cult conditioning, you know. In 1971, Process is actually awarded a grant by the Canadian government to set up a, a number of soup kitchens in Toronto. And within a year, they then started a, a radio show on Boston University's station called Facts and Figures. By now, they were claiming an, an estimated global membership of between 50 and 100,000 people. But, you know, take that with a pinch of salt. Now, it's believed that Mary had made efforts to connect with political figures in America at some point in the late 60s and the early 70s. And as with their efforts to find celebrity endorsements, uh, money and notoriety was at the forefront of her thinking. But, you know, because she liked to push people's buttons and test her followers, she made a point of sending processions in pairs to meet with politicians that sat on the, the right and the far right of the political spectrum in America. So at one time she sent Timothy Wiley and a Jewish procession called Michael to meet George Lincoln Rockwell, who was the founder of the American Nazi party. And they're they also supposed to have performed a faith healing for George Wallace, who was an arch segregationist. But, you know, by the mid 1970s, there was a growing sense of directionlessness um, Mary and Robert were arguing more and more over her leadership style. The church wasn't growing as expected. They were losing a lot of followers because of the Manson allegations. And the mission as a whole had become 
extremely confused. I mean, you know, to us as outsiders, it seems like it was always confused, but it made sense to them at least up until the mid 70s. So Mary actually kicked Robert out of the church in 1974, and he left with a woman called Morgana, who he eventually married. But at this point, he still thought there was a chance of reconciling with Mary, but a year later, she filed for divorce. Internally, a lot of members were growing disillusioned with how the children of church members were being treated. Because it's safe to say that Mary was something of an antenatalist and she she hated children. I haven't found much about sexual abuse, but there was a definite culture of indifference and neglect towards the kids. Because they were usually dumped on the lowest ranking processions while the rest of the congregation took themselves off to meditate and practice telepathy and whatever the fuck else for hours and sometimes days at a time. And it's also in 1974 that Mary changes the process's name to the Foundation Church of the Millennium. And she is in full-on dictator mode at this point. And this is the period where a lot of the stories about sexual coercion comes from. You know, she would demand that processions screw a person of her choosing to prove they didn't have any inhibitions and that they trusted her judgment, that kind of thing. Loyalty tests. After the process, Robert cuts, he cuts a rather sad figure, to be honest, because he still seems to believe in its mission, as does Morgana. And they try to set up something new with other ex-members. And they even consider starting a process college in either New Orleans or Boston. And he tried to sell Mary on the idea of letting him set up a process center in Canada that would return to the focus on therapy and treating compulsive behavior. But Mary wasn't interested. And she then changed the name again to the foundation faith of the millennium And they bought a four-story building on First Avenue in New York. And Timothy was promoted to director of the New York headquarters. This is where they ran night classes that were open to the public on subjects ranging from psychic abilities to improving mental health to spiritualism to faith healing. It's very of a piece with its time. And Mary ordered the closure of every other chapter except the New York branch. And all these members converge there. And for a brief period of time, interest in the group surged again. And Timothy Wiley, though, had decided that he needed a change of scenery. And in 1977, he he left the group with, I think it was about 15 other ex-members. He set up something that he called the unit, and he'd intended this to be a subchapter of the Foundation Faith. But Mary, instead, Mary sued him for IP theft I think it was IP theft or copyright infringement, something like that. And the two groups cut off all contact with each other and the unit fell apart pretty soon afterwards. By the end of the 70s, Robert and Morgana had more or less fully rejoined society and he wound up taking an office job as some kind of data entry clerk or data analyst I've read while Morgana studied for a law degree. And the pair of them settled down on Staten Island and changed their surname as well to avoid being tracked down. Foundation Faith, meanwhile, was running low on funds. So they sold the New York building and they moved to Tucson, Arizona. 
and Tim Wiley explained what was driving Mary's thinking as the 1980s loomed. He said, quote, I think the movement went from humanity is the devil to humanity is redeemable to fuck humanity, only the animals are worth saving. And sure enough, you know, after four years in Tucson, Foundation moved to Utah and it was reborn as um, an, an animal sanctuary. And Mary had married co-founder uh, Gabriel DePea at this point. And by 1993, they stripped out all religious and spiritual connotations uh, from their, their charter and their branding, and they became Best Friends Animal Society. And pretty rapidly grew into the one of the most prominent no-kill reherming charities for pets in the United States. Now I clipped this from their website, quote, 35 years ago, a group of people made a leap of faith to realize a vision that they had long shared, to create a sanctuary for abandoned and abused animals. This was the logical extension of the rescue and advocacy work they'd been doing for years. Uh, you gotta love that. Little did they appreciate that their endeavor would catapult them to the forefront of a fledgling movement to end the killing of 17 million dogs and cats who were dying in our nation's shelters annually. With little money, no master plan, few construction skills and countless lives hanging in the balance, they set out to address a local aspect of a much larger problem. What they created instead was the largest no-kill animal sanctuary in the world and a national movement to end the killing of companion animals. I haven't checked that claim about whether or not they are actually the largest no-kill animal sanctuary in the world, but hats off, you know, fair play. Sometimes you've got to say it, guys. When a cult transforms itself into a no-kill animal sanctuary and is successful in its endeavor, hats off, tip of the hat. And it goes on to say, anyway, quote, the story of the founding of Best Friends and of its creators can be compared to other pivotal social movements. John Muir and the Sierra Club, Jane Goodall and the Jane Goodall Institute's Preservation of Species. And it is also a story comparable to the beginnings of other iconic brands like Apple and Nike. Apple and Nike. Steve Jobs, seeking to get a computer into the hands of everyday people, started Apple in his garage. Bill Bowerman, a University of Oregon track and field coach who wanted to improve the performance of his athletes, joined with avid runner Phil Knight, who had an MBA, to create Nike. The story of best friends is one to be shared with anyone who might be inspired by the power of a belief and how that belief can change attitudes, transform lives, and create a better world. There is no mention anywhere on the website of the fact that they used to be a <laughs> satanically influenced cult born out of Scientology called the Process Church. As far as transformations go, this is more radical than like when the Beatles went from Love Me Do to Tomorrow Never Knows. You know, I, this, is, this is crazy. I love it. Uh, but yeah, with the establishment of best friends, Mary then basically saw almost total anonymity uh, throughout the 80s and beyond. And it seems like she was content to leave the running of the sanctuary to her partners and live quietly on the Utah ranch with her, you know, her German shepherds and her husband. And to be fair, I've seen the figures and apparently they 
have contributed. I don't know if they are the prime movers behind that, but they have contributed to reducing the amount of harmless pets being euthanized across the United States by 91%. So, you know, that's pretty cool. I mean, it might seem glib to say that process, you know, in many ways embodies the story of the 60s counterculture. I know that sounds glib saying it, but it is hard to read this any other way. You know, we have the spiritual seeking, the restless, confused sort of chasing after new experiences, the moral panic, authors and researchers feeding the conspiracy industry that sprung up in the, the paranoid atmosphere of the time. And then eventually you even have this sad, dejected return back to the real world, back to earth, as they move deeper into the darkness of the 70s and the 80s then arrives in all its, you know, brainless, primary colored, vacant glory. Even the three founders actually seem to reflect archetypes of the period. You know, you have Robert de Grimstone, who goes from selling Satanism and acting out his Aleister Crowley fantasies and diving into new age spirituality. He goes from that to trading stocks and, you know, working a nine five. And, you know, now, so the rumors say he's living anonymously in some suburb or another on the East Coast, enjoying his retirement. Uh, Timothy Wiley, well, he's the epitome of the old hippie who never gave up the dream. You know, he's written books on everything from UFOs to past life experiences. Um, he's still a proponent as well of psychedelic drugs. And I actually found an interview with him on a Psychonaut website. And it has this absolute banger of a quote that I need you to hear. So the question is, as I am sure you are well aware, lots of people think that salvia contains a message. Did it tell you anything? And Timothy Wiley's answer is, my approach has always been try everything three times. First time, it's often, am I high yet? Either nothing happens or everything. Second time, you kind of know what's coming down the pike and can adjust accordingly. Third time is make or break. One should know by this time whether one can work with it or what its prospective function in one's life could be. In this way, one makes some unlikely allies. I found, for example, that PCP and angel dust, contrary to its bad rep, is the queen of the concocted entheogens and an invaluable ally to bust open my head. Mary's story after the founding of Best Friends is, in keeping with everything else about her, it's much, much murkier, but the connection she'd made to wealthy patrons with money in the 70s probably helped her get the organization rolling. Tim Wiley actually visited the Utah Ranch a couple of times, and he described this huge house that the organization had built for Mary to live in during her retirement, and he was given a tour of the interior. And he found himself struck by how like dark and oppressive and grand the interior design was. And Mary told him that she'd requested it to be built to resemble an ancient Egyptian tomb. And in fact, best friends to this day, it continues to go from you know strength to strength. Just last year, November, Mark Peralta, who is the chief programs officer of Best Friends, he attended a special ceremony at the Empire State Building to celebrate the release of Clifford the Big Red Dog, and all the film stars were there, and Peralta accepted a donation of $25,000 from the movie studio as a thank you to Best Friends for its work 
reharming animals. And then they lit up the Empire State Building, a deep blood red as the sun was sinking beneath the horizon. So you can imagine how this went down in some circles, you know, given the rumors surrounding process and Son of Sam and big dogs and New York and bloodshed. Uh, so, you know, all right, let's say that there was actually something else going on with this Empire State Building light show, you know. I don't think there was, but for the sake of argument, like hypothetically, I think in that case, it's possible that there is still enough residual sense of mischief at the top level of best friends that they thought when the, the idea was presented to them by the movie studio, they thought it'd be a lark, you know, a kind of very funny wink and a nod, an inside jerk, like a lurky callback to the days when, you know, they were at the center of half a dozen conspiracy theories tying them to some of the biggest crimes of mid 20th century America. The more I've looked into process and, you know, their status in conspiracy circles, the more I feel like they are a textbook example of what happens when English art school sarcasm collides head on with overly earnest Americans who are looking for meaning, you know, and that's not a diss against like my American pals, you know, you know, I love you guys, but that's what it strikes me as a lot of the time. And I can, in fact, show you how the exact same thing happened at least three times with the Beatles alone. So first, there was the time when John Lennon said that they were more popular than Jesus. And this triggered, you know, a wave of hysteria that led to death threats from the KKK and record burning pies. Second, there was the Paul is dead conspiracy. And third, and, you know, most horrifically and most relevant to us, is Charles Manson completely missing the irony and self-referential nature of the White Album's lyrics and reading them instead as coded messages to the family to initiate Helter Skelter. And, you know, to this day, there are still people on the right and the left who sincerely believe that the Beatles were some kind of government psyop because... They just can't compute the sarcasm and the, the winking irony. I know it's insufferable, but that's just what a lot of these art school graduates of the post-war education system in Britain are like, you know. And Process kind of took that ball and ran with it to an extreme degree, I think. So, yeah, to bring it back to Mary, even her death actually is a mystery because there doesn't appear to actually be a certificate and when Timothy Wiley found out about her passing, he asked around, you know, and he heard a story from some best friends insiders about what is supposed to have happened. And it's so perfect that we should probably end with it. Wiley says that he was told that Mary liked to take an evening walk around the Utah ranch. And there was a big artificial lake um, on the property. And one night in 2005, she was strolling by this lake and a pack of dogs shot out of some nearby trees, ran her down and tore her throat out. Quote, the wild dogs were believed to be escapees from the animal sanctuary, best friends. 
the very place that appears to be the final iteration of her brain children, compulsion analysis, the process church of the final judgment, and the foundation faith of the millennium. But I should point out that it is, of course, entirely possible that this is also either a weird bit of humor from these best friends insiders, or it's Tim Wiley telling us all one last joke only he gets at the end of his book. And that's it. That's the story of Process Church. Next time out, we are wrapping up our lateral Manson miniseries with a look at other murders connected to the family, unsolved murders. Uh, shout out to Bradley as well, if you're listening, mate, um, for helping me gather some examples of Process Church's magazine and design aesthetic. Uh, I will put some of this stuff up on Patreon so that you can have a look. In my opinion, it looks extremely cool. Um, and I am definitely going to endeavor to try and track down some of these magazines that they printed, although I'm told they're very expensive collector's editions these days. Um, so yeah, as ever, thanks for listening. Urge on friends and loved ones. Leave a rating and review on iTunes if you get a chance. And don't get captured. Thanks a lot, guys. Are red, Mark, well, what are you say? Her eyes are blue, her cheeks are red. The wealth of her is on her head. Oh. <laughs> I'll go no more a roving with you, fair maid. A roving, a roving, a roving's been my rewrite. Go no more a roving with you, fair maid. I put my arm around her waist, Mark, well, what I do say? She said, young man, you're in some ace. <laughs> I put that girl upon my knee, Mark, well, what I do say? I put that girl upon my knee. She said, young man, you're rather free. <laughs> Son of Oche. She swore that she'd be good to me. Mark, well, what I do say? She swore that she'd be good to me. She spent my money <laughs> fast and free. <laughs> the senator was our captain. He was a mighty dog. Served out to all the company a double sheriff's strong. 